Hey, for everybody, but especially for our team, as you come back, two just quick thoughts before, as we dive in, uh, and, and, and both Matt's already mentioned it. Uh, one of the challenges when we come back, I, I always call it post-mission trip blues. You have this incredible experience, and then you come back, and it's like, wah, wah, back to reality. And one, it's not back to reality. It's the same mission field. And so you got to maintain the same fervor. Two, though, is this. Jesus sent some disciples out on a mission trip, and they came back all ecstatic about everything they saw God do. And Jesus said, amen. Now stop being so excited about all you got to be a part of God doing and rejoice even deeper that your names are found in the book of life. So the number one thing you and I can do when we come back from an experience on a mission trip as as amazed as we are at all that God is doing and has done is to reground ourselves even more deeply in amazement that somehow, some way, God so loved us, He sent His own and only Son. And somewhere along the way at the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the hearing of the gospel, if you're in Christ, you responded and Jesus saved you. That's the key to all of it is never growing past that. Now, in light of that, for the next few minutes, um, we're going to come back. I mentioned last week, when you look at early church history, there are two major threats that the church faces and they haven't changed, by the way. There's still the same two threats today. And really, in some ways, there's, there's three threats, but you got to understand these two to understand the third, and they all are still today. One is persecution. We looked at kind of an overview of that last week. The other is heresy. It's heresy, false truth in the name of Jesus that has potential to, in the words of Paul, shipwreck your faith. Didn't know if that was me or someone else right there. Make sure my phone's on silent. Um, now, I'm not going to cover, both for the sake of time and just for the sake of confusion, I'm not going to cover every heresy there was in the early church. Instead, tonight, I want to simply highlight, as we move into what we would call the second century, that is 100 to 200 AD, uh, the two major heresies that are going to assault the church in that time. And as while doing so, I'm going to mention some names that Next time we're back, you're going to hear me share a little bit more about that are key names as far as believers who stood up. Uh, by far, the greatest threat to the church in the second century was uh, it came, out, came from a man named Marcion. Now, Marcion was raised in, in, in Sinope, which is, a, which is a city on the edge of the Black Sea, city on the edge of the Black Sea. So he's quite a bit north in terms of biblical geography. He's quite a bit north from what we're typically used to looking at. Ironically, his dad is a pastor, or the term they would have used is bishop. Uh, he will work as a shipbuilder, and in working as a shipbuilder, he will be quite wealthy. And, and, and two key things about him, he is going to uh, hold two views. He's going to have a deep resentment towards, uh, towards the Jews. And some of that, some have debated, is, is because of some potential Jewish revolts that took place likely during his childhood. It would have maybe left a bad taste in his mouth. In addition, he's going to uh, have a great, from a, from a philosophical standpoint, he's going to have a hatred for physical reality. Now, you, that's going to seem strange. So let me back up for a second. In the first century in the ancient world, you have, just like you do today, you have certain philosophies that dominate culture. We have them today. We've studied them in worldview. We have modernism and postmodernism. You have humanism. You have a scientism, naturally. We have all sorts of philosophies that, that are predominant in our American culture 
that all of us have grown up or are growing up being exposed to, and, and some of us are just exposed and we see them where they're false. Some of us have been exposed and, and, and even a little bit indoctrinated. Some are extremely. This isn't a new thing, but in the, in the early world, you had a, a very, st- or in the ancient world, you had a very strong philosophy that came from Plato. Have you ever heard, anyone ever heard of Plato's cave analogy? Plato's cave analogy. If you don't know, let me give you the real simple version. You got two guys in a cave, seeing these shadowy figures go across the back of the cave. So they see the shadow of a horse, but to them it's a horse because they don't know that there's a world outside of the cave. They are chained to a wall facing the back of the cave. And as they see these things go across the cave wall, like shadow, a shadow television program, that to them is what they think is real because they don't know that if their chains were broken and they were to turn around, there is an opening to the cave outside of which is a bright sun that's casting shadows on the actual horse and the actual lion that are walking in front of that. And they're just seeing the shadow, but they don't realize it because they're trapped. Now, this analogy is to drive at that you and I live in this physical world that is a mere shadow of a higher, more true world. And we have to escape the bondage of the physical world. Now, escape, I don't necessarily mean that for Plato, like what we would talk about with maybe Hinduism or Buddhism, where we're, we're trying to escape to a high. We're talking about that there's, there's something beyond this, and, 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 and in doing this, it creates what we call a dualism, that there is something spiritual, unseen. We can give it a lot of different words. That is good, that is better, that is desirable, and the physical is lesser, less important, bad, wicked, depending on how, how that idea philosophically is brought into to whatever version of beliefs. Um, you may go, that sounds really weird, but let me just tell you, dualism, we do it today. Not in the same ways, but we do it today. We want to make sure, believer, you know, the spiritual life, that's what's important. The spiritual life, are you, are you being truthful? Are you being honest? How are you doing with those lustful thoughts? The spiritual life. Oh, the spiritual life. It's good to go share the gospel on mission trips. The spiritual is most important. Meanwhile, doesn't matter how you take care of your body, what you eat, what you drink. Think about the verse, for bodily training is of some profit. Oh, it's only of some profit. Spiritual training is what matters. Well, that's not quite what Paul's trying to draw with that, but that's how we assume it. Because we've created a dualism that says certain things are spiritual and therefore better. Other things are just secular and they're not as important. My job's just secular. It's just a vocation. It's not that important. False. It's not just a job to get a paycheck. It's a mission field. And if the only reason you're there to get a paycheck, you need to go back and check yourself with the Lord and whether or not you're in the right spot or not. Part of the reason we have post-mission trip blues is because a mission trip is sacred. I'm doing something from the Lord, but living my everyday life at home is just mundane and normal. It's, that's dualism just in a different, different way. So we still struggle with these ideas just in different ways because most of you are not running around going, man, I hate my physical car that has physical air conditioning to keep me physically warm. We're not doing that. It's a little different, but we live in a different philosophical day. We live in a philosophical day that if anything has, 
has actually said the inverse, which is the physical is the greatest thing there is and the only thing there is to where we actually neglect the spiritual for the physical. Now, having given you that background, I give you that background to say Marcion grew up in a day where these were the philosophical ideas. And he was obviously in some way attracted to him. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to go to Rome with a lot of money around 144 AD. He's going to tithe and give a lot of money to the church. And the church is going to go, you're, you're savvy and you've got a lot of money, but you say some things that don't line up with what God's word says. And the church is going to kick him out. But he is a well-to-do, wealthy man who, who has good organizational skills and some charisma. And so he organizes his own church with its own pastors centered around his own theology, which is going to be this. He is going to reject the entire Old Testament and say none of it's the Word of God. He's going to take the New Testament and he's going to cut out any parts of the New Testament that seem to rely on the Old Testament and, and, are, and are heavily influenced by Jews. So this is what his New Testament is going to look like. It's going to look like certain portions of the Gospel of Luke, written by a Gentile. Irony being of all the Gospels, John's is the most heavily related to the Gentiles. But And then he's going to say, only Paul's letters because only Paul really understood who Jesus is. The disciples were Jews and they messed it up. And as one critic of Marcion put, put it, Marcion believed he's the only one who understood Paul, but he misunderstood Paul. So Marcion's going to come, and here's why he's also significant from a history perspective. At this time in the church, the church knows what books of Scripture are Scripture and what books aren't. The church knows the difference between what is the Bible and what is the pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Both are great. Only one is the Word of God. They know what's truth, what's not. What has not happened, though, is the formal process by which they said, we've bound the only 66 authoritative books of the, of the Bible into one codex, and we've said, we've said authoritatively, and that's going to come. We're going to look at that in the next couple of weeks. That's called the process of canonization. But it's not because they didn't know what was Scripture. They knew what the Word of God was, but they, hadn't, they didn't have any need to make a big to-do about it because it was just understood. It's kind of like as a youth pastor, when I realized at a certain point, you cannot just say the rules of the game. You have to say the rules of the game and think of every possible way that, a, that one of my students could say, well, the word you said only means this. It didn't mean this. So therefore we can break it this way, but we're not really breaking the rules because you didn't say it, right? You've got to, as they, as they come up with new ways to break the rules, you've got to reestablish what should be obvious to everybody. It's the same thing. So as heresy comes up with new ways, they've got to respond to it. But what's significant is Marcion's going to be the first person to really come together and go, nope, this is the only authoritative word of God bound together. He's going to be the first one to create his own canon that now the church is going to have to respond to. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to say that the Old Testament, the Old Testament is false. And the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament that there's two gods, the creator God, Yahweh, and the Father, the creator God, Yahweh, of the Old Testament is a ruthless, cruel, vindictive, warmongerer who does evil. Yes, the Old Testament predicts a Jewish Messiah, but that's not Jesus. Jesus came from the Father, the God of the New Testament, the God of love. He came not to fulfill the law, but to destroy the law. 
And he came not as a physical savior because the physical realities, if Jesus came physically in the flesh, then he's enslaved to the creator God, Yahweh, the same as all of us are. Jesus, so this is why he cut out all references of Luke's one and two in the virgin birth. Instead, Jesus just appeared like a man because Jesus is really a spiritual being who's going to show us how to be released from spiritual. By the way, the resurrection is not a true resurrection. It's only a resurrection of the spirit, of the soul. And Jesus only seemed to suffer, which will be a later heresy we'll address, uh, but he didn't really suffer because he's not physical. And so he's going to go on, and, and it's part of the outworking of this, because in the, typically when you start to deny the inherent, say this carefully, inherently physical creation is good. Why? God created it. He said it was good. And can a good God create anything not good? No. Creation, physical creation is good. You'll hear me harp on it a lot. There's a reason I harp on it a lot, because there's times we... We go, oh, listen, physical creation's good. God actually cares if we take care of our bodies or not. He doesn't want us to treat our bodies like trash. Doesn't mean he expects all of us to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he also expects us to take care of our bodies, what we eat, what we drink. He, he, the, he uh, has expectations for what we do in this physical world. Part of the, the, the story of creation is what we call the cultural mandate, that you and I created as human beings have a mandate by God to go take the culture of Eden, the culture of the goodness of heaven, and seek to bring about culture into this world, a.k.a. the culture of heaven doesn't enslave other human beings and William Wilberforce going, so I'm going to make it my life's effort to be in the political system to eliminate slavery. That's the cultural mandate. It's no different than saying, wow, God created the human body, and I am so inspired by a God who created the wonders of the human body, I'm going to go pursue being a biologist, a geneticist, a not because of what I can get out of it, but because of how I can stand for the glory of the Lord and discover truth that could go on and on with that and all these different vocations. It's part of what we call the cultural mandate, the mandate that God gave humanity to go and create good culture. Well, that goes away if physical is bad. And when physical is bad, typically there's one of two poles we go to. Now, physical creation is good. We know physical creation is broken. So the problem is not that it's evil, it's broken. It's been broken by sin. So there is a problem with physical creation now, but it's not that it's inherently bad, it's that it's broken by our sin. It's typically one of two extremes you go to. You either go to this extreme that Marcion went to, which is if the physical is bad and the physical is trapping you, we're going to go to extreme asceticism. Deny yourself pleasure. No sex. No marriage. Only water. He's going to go so far in, in, the, in, in, his, in, his, uh, in the intensity of uh, rejecting the physical that he will not eat meat or drink milk because they come from animals which procreate. And that's part of the wickedness of the physical enslavement. Now, the irony is, and I told John this earlier because he went on a fishing trip, the irony is he said it was okay to eat fish. I guess he didn't realize fish procreate too. Uh, but uh, anyways, now the other, extreme, the other extreme is because the physical body doesn't matter, 
you should just give in to whatever you want to do in your desires. That's the other extreme that will come out in other heresy, but both of those are the directions you're going to pull to. Now, he's going to establish all of this, and the church he establishes is actually going to last until the 5th century. It's going to create something dangerous because he creates his own canon, he creates his own structure, where a lot of the other heresies are more just kind of movements that are kind of nebulous, and some people buy in, and some... This is a true, legitimate, false church. And in, in what he does is he's going to cause the church to respond even stronger and start to pinpoint, well, here's where you're off. Jesus, Jesus Christ, there's not a New Testament God and an Old Testament God, there's one God. Jesus Christ is not some product of the New Testament. He's been there since the beginning. You're going to start to see the theologians and the pastors really start to put out aspects of the Trinity. God is not love or justice. He's God who is both love and justice. And in addition, what you're going to see in the New Testament church is you're going to see the New Testament church really come back to the fact you can't wash away the Old Testament. The whole New Testament is built upon the entire Old Testament. And you've got to hold the ground of both. And they're going to do this in responding to the heresy of Marcion, who's going to come in and do that. Now, second to this, and I'm, I'm going to do, I'm watching a clock. Don't worry, choir folk, I am watching the clock, which is probably good because I could really probably mess everyone in the room up with this next thing. So it's going to make me be real simple. The other major thing in the second century uh, that was going on is what we call Gnosticism. Gnosticism, from the Greek word gnosis for knowledge. And Gnosticism is really honestly somewhat a tricky thing for me to fully just nail down and define for you. There's three different theories as to how it originated, all three of which hold some level of truth, but all three of which we can't fully say it's one or the other. Was it a Jewish heresy? Was it a Christian heresy? Was it a pagan heresy that mixed in with Christianity? A little bit of both. Both, all three. I don't know what the right term, a little bit of all. Uh, part of the challenge is we only have so many documents from it uh, firsthand. A lot of the documents we have are all of the biblical scholars rejecting it, responding to it. And they did a great job responding to it. But sometimes, like we can do, they also sometimes misconstrued some of the things. Doesn't mean that the other people were right. They were wrong. It's just uh, you, want, you always want to study people in their own firsthand words. The basic idea behind Gnosticism is this. It is a dualistic thought where whatever God is God, when he first created, he only wanted to create spiritual. So he made a bunch of spiritual beings. One of those spiritual beings goofed up and made physical beings. And the physical creation is bad. It was a mistake. It's not intended. You and I are actually spiritual beings trapped in physical bodies and, and the aim of salvation is once we possess the secret knowledge that the spiritual Messiah must give us, then we can move up the levels. There's different spiritual levels until we get back to what we were meant to be. And at each of those spiritual levels, there are evil spirits who are trying to keep us locked in the darkness. And you can hear some of, you can hear some of the connections between that and Plato's cave analogy, just in a spiritual context. Uh, they, they believed in mythic origins. Um, Gnosticism is extremely attractive. It's extremely attractive because it fits philosophical thought of the day. 
It's extremely attractive because at, at the heart of Gnosticism is a recognition that there is a longing in the human heart for something more, something beyond, something this physical world can't fulfill. Now that's true. But their response to how, how do you fix that problem? It's by secret knowledge, not by repentance and faith in a savior who died a sacrificial death to fix the brokenness from sin that separated you from the only one who can feel that longing. See, there is an inherent humility and costliness with Christian salvation, according to Scripture, that they, you know, there's nothing about repentance. You, you just got to know the secret password, for lack of better terms. So it's attractive because it's costless. Uh, there were two different versions of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism doesn't just have one solid thing. It kind of depended upon which group you were a part of and who your teacher was. Um, some Gnostics were not Christians at all. Some Gnostics, because of the emphasis on spiritual reality, because of the emphasis on that does pair up. Are we not spirit? Yes. Is there a spiritual realm? Yes. Are we, when we die, are we going to be separated from this physical body and go to a spiritual realm, heaven, that's more wonderful than this present world? Yes. Now, are we also going to have a Lord who returns and raises up our bodies, re you know, resurrected forevermore and a new heaven and new? Yes, that part. That, but you understand how, and especially in a day and time where it's not like everybody has access to five copies of their Bible. You understand how this would be attractive. It fits what's popular in culture, the philosophy of the day. It's costless. It can affirm Christian language. Oh yeah, we can affirm that creed because we define those words differently, but we won't tell you that. It, it emphasized the other big thing that was in the first century is what we call mystery religions, um, which are kind of secretive cults, if you will. Like the secret, not, there, there's something about, even to this day, we still have that. No, is anybody, you know, why, why do we have to have exposés on Scientology exposing all the secrets? Because we're still drawn to secret nonsense. So you have all of this. In addition, there's going to be things. Because your physical body doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. So some of the office like pastor in a normal church, that they would look at the scriptures and go, okay, God's, God seems to limit the role of pastor to, uh, to the men, and they try to then follow that. In the Gnostic church, we don't care if you're a guy or a girl because your body doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Well, that's more attractive. You don't have certain things. Not only that, but it's gonna, you're going to be drawn. If you're hardcore, if you're a hardcore dietitian crossfitter, well, the, the body's bad. Eat really strict. Don't do that. Deny yourself pleasure. Or if you just want sensuality and sexuality and whatever you want, the body's evil. Doesn't matter what you do with it anyways. Just gratify it, and it's every last lust. It fits it all. And so Gnosticism... Gnosticism was extremely attractive and was able to morph. It, it denied the identity of the creator with the one supreme God. It denied the goodness of the created order. It would deny the full incarnation of Christ. It denied actual revelation of God intervening in history. Instead, it was speculative myths and secret traditions. It denied redemption by the blood of the cross. The cross was only an allegory. And there is no resurrection of the body. 
All of these things were attractive in Gnosticism. And so here's what I give you with these second century. Time, time comes to a close now. You're, we're going to find when we come back next time is we're going to see how the church, some of the individuals that stood up and said, nope, we're going to stand up for truth. Here's what the, Lord, the Lord's word says. Here's how this comes back. But here's what I want you to understand about these early heresies. They were attractive because they fit the cultural messages of the day. And that has not changed in the, or the 1900 years since. Paul says to Timothy, in fact, I was going back through it earlier. I, I, I won't read them all, I'll just quote them, but over in First and Second Timothy, where Paul's writing, Timothy, who, who's a young pastor, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Check what you teach. Is it in line with the truth? Don't accept a gospel outside of the one that we taught you. You've got the ultimate passage, right? 2 Timothy 3. There's going to come a time when people are not going to handle sound preaching of the Word. Instead, they're going to accumulate for themselves preachers who will tickle their ears, who will tell them what they want to hear. And understand when Paul talks like that to, to Timothy, he's, he's not necessarily talking about Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and other religions. He's talking about people who are going to claim the name Jesus Christ, who are going to say, thus saith the Lord. Let me quote to you Bible verses to back what I'm gonna say but that are completely outside of the teaching that was handed down once for all. It takes us back to when we walked through Jude, whenever that was sometime in the last year on Sunday mornings. Same thing. Jude's not dealing with people who are from other religions attacking the faith. He's dealing with people who are seeking to corrode the faith from within. And that same challenge and threat to the church has not changed to this day. Now, praise God, here's the good news. The church won. Heresies come and heresies go. And how do heresies go? By God's sovereign protection of his church. And also God's sovereign protection of his church through his church being obedient to stand firm on truth in grace and love. And so that's the same challenge that exists for you and I today. And how do we stand firm on truth and grace and love? We devote ourselves to making sure we know what the Word says as God intended it to say. Listen, as I told you again, you don't read the Bible and go, what does it mean to me? You read the Bible and go, what did God mean when he said it? That's the goal. That's the aim. I'm not supposed to get up and preach to you on Sunday mornings and tell you my opinion on it. I'm supposed to do humble study all week to be able to come up on Sunday mornings and tell you this is what the Lord says. For us, not for you, but for us. I'm not exempt. So the good news is heresies come and heresies go, and the, and, and the solution to what we're supposed to do stays the same. And the good news is when we are seeking to stand firm on Jesus' truth, we have the greatest power at our backs. They don't. So we better stand firm in grace and love, with hope. Because our God reigns. That's a good place for us to stop tonight.
We are off next Wednesday night because it's the fourth holiday. I know it's on a Tuesday, but some people just gets kind of confusing with where it falls on a Tuesday. So we're off next Wednesday, but we'll be back uh, in two weeks, and we will keep marching on forward through uh, the first few centuries of the church and being encouraged by the witness of faithful believers and challenged as we uh, find ourselves living in a world so similar. So similar. And a world so similar that hasn't really the world of, the, of these first few centuries is going to kind of die off and go to kind of a different world for a long time. And it's only been in the last hundred years that our world is increasingly remarkably the same. To that is the early church. So thank you for being here, church family. Uh, love you. Appreciate you. Excited. This Sunday, we will come to one of the most glorious passages in all of the Word of God, which is the precise prediction of the arrival of the Messiah for both the first and second time. And uh, so I'm excited to look at that with you. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We look to you. We're so delighted by the work you uh, have done both in and through the team in Guatemala. And Lord, we just look to you to say, do it in us and through us here with our neighbors, our classmates, maybe even our own family members. That God, we desperately need to live with an awareness of your presence. God, not that somehow you're absent, you're always with us, whether we're aware of it or not, but we want to live with an awareness and an understanding of your presence, of your face shining upon us, that our face in, in, in living lives that so abide in you moment by moment, Jesus, our face would radiate with your glory to this world, that we would stand where you stand, we would stand how you stand, that we would speak firm where you speak firm, that we would speak speak in kindness where you speak kindness. Lord, the reality was you had firm words for the Pharisees and you had loving words for the rich young ruler, yet for both you also showed truth. You never wavered. And Lord, we, we desperately, the greatest need in our world today is, is not for us to win. It's simply for us to be the witness you've called us to be in this world by your power, Holy Spirit. And so we're asking that you do that through us. We're looking to you and hope for that. And we're doing it in light of the fact that, Lord, our days are not mundane and meaningless, no matter where we find ourselves or what they're filled with, whether they're fast or whether they're slow. But as long as it is still today and you have yet to return, oh, there is purpose and meaning as we await and live in light of the fact that you are coming. So, Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.